Today's show is brought to you by Leatherman Data Services. How would things have gone for LaSalle if he'd had a good map maker to find the Mississippi? What if the Santa Fe expedition had been able to commission a detailed survey plot of all the wells and springs from Texas to New Mexico? If Leatherman Data Services had been around back then, Texas history may have turned out differently. Leatherman Data Services are experienced cartographers who share your passion for the past. They provide high-quality mapping and geographic data services for historians, archaeologists, and cultural resource management firms, people who plumb the depths of history and need their maps to be accurate. If you think you may need their services, you can contact Leatherman Data Services by sending an email to leathermandataservices at gmail.com or find out more at their website, leathermandataservices.com. We thank Leatherman Data Services for sponsoring this episode and many others on the History Podcasters Network. You can find more shows like this one at historypodcasters.com. Everybody loves Empire Strikes Back, but the good guys win at the end of Return of the Jedi. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zulkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. Today is the 178th anniversary of the Battle of San Jacinto, where Texan forces under General Sam Houston finally turned around after months of retreat and faced the forces of Mexican dictator Santa Ana. The result was an overwhelming victory by the Texan army that ended the revolution and guaranteed Texas independence. Today we look at the runaway scrape, the chaotic retreat in the face of Santa Ana's army which led to the Battle of San Jacinto. But first, what's your favorite tall Texas monument? Uh, I kind of like the Stephen F. Austin statue down there in Brazoria County because it's out in the middle of a field, it's very isolated, and you, you can't miss it. I love the statue of General Sam Houston right in, uh, right in Huntsville because as you're driving up the highway, he sort of rolls up over the horizon at you and you see him standing there in a tall stretch of trees. Well, my favorite is the San Jacinto Monument, which is in... San Jacinto of the National Battlefield in uh, near Houston, Texas. And it is taller than the Washington Monument by 22 feet. Something like that. Something like that. God bless Texas. There's a big star on top. <laughs> in past episodes, we've talked about the start of the Texas Revolution and the causes behind it leading up to the Battle of Gonzales. After Mexican independence in 1821, Texas was part of the Republic of Mexico and was embroiled, like the rest of Mexico, in the political instability that resulted in the conflict between centralist and federalist governments. Though Anglo-Texans, as well as Tejanos, Texans of Hispanic descent, had initially supported the rise of Antonio López de Santa Ana to the presidency of Mexico in 1833 as a champion of liberalism, his radical shift since 1834 towards centralist conservatism had reignited the conflict throughout Mexico. Santa Ana set himself up as supreme dictator of Mexico and discarded the liberal constitu constitution of 1824. He took away the autonomous rights of the states and attempted to dis disarm the civic militia. His reasons for doing so were clear. He told United States Ambassador Joel Poinsett, quote, a hundred years to come, my people will not be fit for liberty, and that, Quote, unenlightened as they are, despotism is the proper government for them. In response to the suppression, open rebellion broke out throughout Mexico in 1835 against Santa Ana, the most serious rebellions being in central Mexico, Veracruz, and in the north. In October 1835, after months of tension between colonists and Mexican troops, 
Revolt in Texas broke out when Santa Ana's brother-in-law, General Caz, who was commander of the San Antonio garrison, sent troops to the small town of Gonzales to repossess a small cannon. Those men were repulsed in a skirmish, and soon all of Texas was in arms against Mexico. By the end of the year, major garrisons of Nacogdoches, Goliad, and even the city of San Antonio were captured, and the Mexican army under General Caz was driven from the state. A provisional government was established, and it looked like the war was over. We all know the story, though. While Texan volunteers were returning to their homes, General Santa Ana was marshalling his forces to put down the rebellion in the same way as he'd put down all the other revolts throughout Mexico. Santa Ana's plans were clear. He viewed the rebellion in Texas as one instigated by the Anglo-European settlers and the newcomers who were flooding to Texas to fight in the revolution. He'd been through a similar action before. As a young cavalryman in the Spanish colonial militia, he'd come to Texas in 1813 under General José Joaquín de Arredondo to put down the Army of the Republic of the North, set up by the Gutierrez-McGee expedition. Santa Ana had fought at the Battle of Medina, where the Republicans were defeated, all prisoners were slaughtered, and any civilian supporters of the Republic were killed or driven out of Texas. The lessons he learned here, and later in service of various dictators such as Iturbe and Bustamante, was that no quarter should ever be given to his enemies. In the spring of 1835, prior to the Texas Revolt, the militia of the state of Zacatecas in central Mexico had resisted being dissolved, and Santa Ana led an army to put them down. The forces of Zacatecas were well-trained, well-armed, and highly motivated, but Santa Ana's forces defeated them in a bloody battle. After the battle, the captured rebel troops were massacred, and the city of Zacatecas was sacked by his army. Over 3,000 men, women, and children were killed. This is what rebellion against Santa Ana could bring. As he gathered his army in San Luis Potosi, Santa Ana had the Mexican government draft a resolution stating, Foreigners landing on the coast of the Republic or invading its territory by land, armed and with the intent of attacking our country, will be deemed pirates and dealt with as such, being citizens of no nation presently at war with the Republic and fighting under no recognized flag. The standard means of dealing with pirates in the day, of course, was execution. Santa Ana's public intention was that those legal residents of Texas who weren't rebelling against the government had nothing to worry about. But the warning to Anglos, especially the newcomers, was clear. No quarter would be given. He was fully confident that this, combined with his overwhelming show of force, would drive fear into the ranks of the rebels and make his campaign an easy one. You know, at this point, Santa Ana sounds a whole lot like Grand Moff Tarkin. Yes, he does. Fear will keep the systems in line. Yeah. Well, the good news about this episode is that we're past Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now we're we're moving into Return of the Jedi. Right. Santa Ana set out with his hastily assembled army of six thousand men throughout northern Mexico in late December, aiming straight for San Antonio de Bejar. Another force under cavalry commander Jose de Urea advanced up the coast to clear out Texas forces threatening Matamoros and to flank Santa Ana's main force. He had to contend with horrible weather, an ever-lengthening supply line, and Comanche raiders who didn't seem to care that their enemies were fighting each other. But he reached the Rio Grande in early February and arrived in San Antonio on February 28th to set up siege on the small Texan force in the Alamo Mission Fort. Urias force was rolling up Texas forces at San Patricio and Refugio and headed for Goliad. February of 1836 found Texas in confusion. The provisional government was a study in dysfunction. No one could agree on what the intentions of the rebellion were. There was no money, and no one was sure, and no one was sure who was in charge. 
different factions within the Provisional Council had given command of the Army to four separate men. James Fannin, Dr. James Grant, and Frank Johnson were all given separate secret orders to raise forces to invade Mexico. Sam Houston was appointed commander-in-chief of the, quote, regular army, but didn't seem to have any men to command. The army, such as it was, was by now mostly composed of volunteers from the United States, since many of the Texians had already gone home, thinking that the fighting was over. Houston spent most of that January and February trying to organize his forces to get control of the Matamoros expedition, negotiating a treaty with the Cherokee to keep them out of the war, and to establish a functioning government. He was successful in his efforts with the Cherokee, he managed to get Fannin to at least agree to follow his orders, and kept the government in place at Washington on the Brazos, drafting a Declaration of Independence. Uh, that's when many of the delegates wanted to run off and fight Santa Ana when he appeared in Texas. The Declaration of Independence was signed on March 2nd, Houston's birthday. Two days later, Houston was appointed commander of all forces in Texas, regular and volunteer. On March 8th, the delegates of what is now a constitutional convention received Colonel Travis's famous letter asking for help as they were completely cut off within the Alamo. Houston set off for Gonzales to organize the relief force of around 500 men, but it was too late to know that the Alamo had fallen two days before. Houston arrived at Gonzales on March 11th, and a few days later, scouts Henry Carnes and Def Smith found Susanna Dickinson and the other non-combatant survivors of the Alamo, brought them all to General Houston, where the fate of the doomed garrison was learned. The news of the fate of the Alamo garrison couldn't be kept from the public for long. Up until that point, the mood of the troops had been very positive. The men were itching for a fight to relieve the defenders at the Alamo, who included 30 of their own men from Gonzales who'd broken through the lines to reinforce Travis and Bowie. News of the defeat and the massacre hit like a bombshell. Uh, our friend Creed Taylor, who was there, later wrote, quote, Then on a day there was a lull and the tide was turned. Houston knew that his position was untenable as things were, and he couldn't fight Santa Ana's army yet. Houston wrote, Detached as we were without supplies for the men in camp of either provisions, ammunition, or artillery, and remote from succor, it would have been madness to hazard a contest. He dispatched orders to Colonel Fannin to retreat from Goliad to Victoria, and he ordered his army to retreat from Gonzales, evacuating the population and setting fire to the town. News of the Alamo was followed by wild rumors of massacres of Anglo civilians, and a panic ensued. Creed Taylor, who went with his brothers to evacuate his mother and sister from their farm on the Guadalupe River, later said, The first law of nature, self-preservation, was uppermost in the minds of the settlers, and thus the great exodus began. In mass, the settlers both in and out of the path of Santa Ana's army packed up their belongings and headed east, initially for the Brazos and Trinity Rivers, and eventually for the Sabine and the safety of the United States. Houston's army burned towns, houses, and crops along the way to prevent them from aiding Santa Ana's forces. The best part of this story is when Santa Ana's forces get swallowed up by the Red Sea. <laughs> <laughs> I am thinking your Houston is a fool. <laughs> Fannin delayed and moved slowly and was caught by Uriah near Coletto Creek and surrounded. Fannin surrendered on March 27th, and he and most of his force of 350 men were executed on Santa Ana's orders. Only 50 prisoners escaped through the protection of Mexican officers, local citizens, or by managing to flee from the Mexican troops. Santa Ana himself, who'd lost as many as 30% of his combat troops at the Alamo, remained at San Antonio with the bulk of his army for several weeks, regrouping and awaiting reinforcements. He dispatched some of his forces to Gonzales and to Bastrop to pursue Houston's army, and he also sent reinforcements to Uriah at Goliad. 
Finally, on March 29th, he left San Antonio to continue his march through Texas. In the face of this force, panic rolled ahead. Rumors exaggerated Santa Ana's army to five times its size, and more stories of massacre and ruin preceded him. Houston took his best men, the irregular Texas Rangers under Def Smith and Three-Legged Willie, and the Tejano Scouts under Salvador Flores and Juan Seguin, and divided them up to fulfill different roles. Half of them were to serve as rear guards, scouting the movements of Mexican forces, and the other half were to move ahead and among the civilian refugees to protect and guide them, and to find opportune places for Houston to possibly make a stand. Houston's forces crossed the Colorado River on March 17th at Burnham's Crossing, which is near LaGrange, and destroyed the ferry before moving south several miles down the river to Beeson's Crossing, and this is where the present-day town of Columbus is. It's halfway between San Antonio and Houston. They paused there, awaiting Fannin's men, training and regrouping southeast of Bastrop. He'd hoped that Fannin would join him there and that they would have the option of fighting Santa Ana's forces there or retreating to the Brazos. His army at this point had around 700 men and supplies were finally getting to them. A week later, Houston received word of Fannin's fate and made the decision to continue to retreat eastward. Around 200 of his men, mostly locals, left to take care of their families. But as the army headed east, they picked up more men again in the form of reinforcements from eastern Texas and the United States. As news of Goliad spread to the rest of Texas, the panic deepened. The government at Washington on the Brazos headed east as well. The legislature dissolved, and interim president David G. Burnett and his cabinet moved to Harrisburg, which is today's Houston. At this point, it may have been Sam Houston's plan to continue to the border with the United States, the Sabine River, where American forces under Edward Gaines are gathered. Gaines had orders to defend the American border, officially from Indian attacks, but he clearly indicated that any incursion by Mexican forces across the border would be met with force. Houston knew that as a last resort, he could at least take his army across the Sabine in the hope that Santa Ana would follow. None of Santa Ana's writings indicated he planned on crossing the legal border or sparking a war with the United States. Houston, though, had what he thought was an ace in the hole. He had hoped to force an engagement with Santa Ana in the so-called neutral ground, a strip of land between 50 and 100 miles wide that was between the Natchez and the Sabine River. He knew that his friend and mentor, American President Andrew Jackson, claimed that the Natchez was the true eastern border of Texas, and there was a hope that a battle with Santa Ana would draw in Gaines's forces. Regardless of what was planned, hundreds of refugees streamed across the border, and scores of American volunteers headed into Texas towards Houston's retreating army. He first reached the Brazos at the capital of the old Austin colony, San Felipe de Austin, on March 28th, but he wouldn't stay there long. They marched upriver a few miles after burning Austin's fine town and camped at the west side of the Brazos near the crossing at Gross's Plantation, which is near Houston. They were awaiting more reinforcements, including two cannon that were donated by the people of Cincinnati, Ohio, which were dubbed the Twin Sisters. The army waited for two weeks at Gross's Plantation, and then they were shuttled across the Brazos on April 12th by the new steamship, the Yellowstone, and they continued to head east towards Harrisburg on the Trinity River. As Houston's army moved, the refugee train continued to grow. Creed Taylor's account of moving his mother and younger siblings from their homes on the Guadalupe is representative of the time. He wrote of the refugees fleeing east with whatever belongings and possessions they could carry, saying, People were trudging along in every time of conveyance, some on foot carrying heavy packs. I saw every kind of conveyance ever used in that region, hand barrows, sleds, carts, wagons, some drawn by oxen, horses, and burros. About the scene, he said, I have never witnessed such scenes of distress and human suffering. 
True, there was no clash of arms, no slaughter of men and horses, as on the field of battle, but here the suffering was confined to decrepit old men, frail women, and little children. This seemed never to end for the refugees. Taylor wrote, As they traveled on through the long days in wet and bedraggled apparel, finding even at night little relief from their suffering, since the wet earth and angry sky offered no relief. What is truly amazing is that despite the panic, Santa Ana's main forces took even more time in their pursuit than the Texans did in their retreat. His advance forces were at times dogging on Houston's heels, but Santa Ana himself repeatedly delayed. He only left San Antonio with his main army, around 1,500 men, on March 29th. He reached San Felipe on April 7th and was unaware that Houston's army was camped just 15 miles upriver. For a week, the armies were within marching distance of each other, and Houston once again slipped away when the Rangers and Teano scouts reported that Santa Ana was moving towards him again. Houston's rear guard, the Rangers and Tejanos, were instrumental in preventing Santa Ana's forces from crossing the Brazos behind Houston. Their harassment and delays put Santa Ana at a crossroads. The Napoleon of the West, as he was known, wanted a decisive battle where the rebellious Texans were crushed once and for all. But his campaign of terror had worked too well, and Houston was a more cagey and cautious commander than his predecessors had been. Santa Ana didn't want to keep chasing after Houston, but his spies reported to him that the Texas government under Burnett and Vice President Lorenzo de Zavala were in Harrisburg, essentially undefended. Zavala especially was an enticing target for the dictator, since Zavala previously had been an ally in the liberal struggle against centralism, but had denounced Santa Ana after he seized power and abolished the Constitution. Santa Ana broke his pursuit off of Houston's army and headed south to cross the Brazos at Old Fort Bend, which is south of Houston. When Santa Ana reached Old Fort, he divided his army in three. One large detachment he left behind to guard the supply line. He dispatched his cavalry and sent them ahead to Harrisburg to capture the president and his cabinet. He followed along with his main force of infantry and artillery. His force at this point numbered around 1,300 men. Santa Ana's decision to break off his chase of the Texan army and attempt to capture the Texas government may actually have saved Houston's command. By early April, the panic was at its height, and confidence in Houston was at an all-time low. Although publicly Burnett's government was supportive of Houston, privately he was increasingly critical of the continued strategy of retreat. Houston bristled at the criticism, stating, quote, I have, under the most disadvantageous of circumstances, kept an army together, but I cannot perform impossibilities. He endured insubordination and desertion with more grace and toleration than most commanders, especially his old commander Andrew Jackson would have. At San Felipe, he faced outright mutiny from a company of mostly local settlers from the Austin colony who refused to retreat past the Brazos. He diffused it by ordering the company to stay and defend the crossings at San Felipe and Old Fort Bend and to delay Santa Ana's army, which they did in brief fighting. But mutinous grumbling continued as Houston retreated eastward. When Houston learned of Santa Ana's plan to capture the government at Harrisburg, he knew that Santa Ana wasn't going to follow him to the United States border, just like Santa Ana figured that Houston wasn't going to fight. He also knew that Santa Ana had been whittling away at his own army by dividing it into detachments, while his own force was now around 1,100 men, giving him something closer to parity with the Mexicans. On April 15th, at a fork in the road where one direction led northeast to the Trinity River and on to Nacogdoches, and another led south, southeast towards Harrisburg, Houston faced another mutiny from his men who would not retreat anymore. He turned his army towards Santa Ana to finally force the battle that everyone wanted, and from that point on, the army was his wholeheartedly. And remember, as we learned in, the, in uh, talking about the Texas Rangers, that Texas men could not be commanded. They had to be led. 
Santa Ana was blind to Houston's movements since he presumed the Texas Army was headed for Nacogdoches. His advance force of cavalry reached the now-deserted Harrisburg on April 12th, just missing capturing Burnett, literally by minutes. Burnett was on a rowboat headed towards Galveston Bay, and his life was spared by Colonel Juan Alamante, a gentleman soldier who convinced Santa Ana to let Susanna Dickinson go back at the Alamo, and who declined to order his men to shoot at an unarmed man and his family. Santa Ana arrived with the Army three days later and ordered the town torched. Texas Army reached the east side of the Buffalo Bayou, which is a small river that runs by Harrisburg. He didn't know where Santa Ana's army was, though. Santa Ana moved his force south of Harrisburg to Morgan's Point, where the Texas government was rumored to have fled. They didn't find them as Burnett and Zavala had already gone to Galveston Island, so they burned that small settlement as well. Houston's army crossed the bayou and set up a camp at the head end of a marshy, wooded area where the bayou meets the San Jacinto River. Houston had hoped to block Santa Ana from using the Lynchburg Ferry to cross the San Jacinto and move east, and to prevent him from using the Harrisburg Road, which went back west. Santa Ana turned north and headed towards Houston's force, not entirely sure that they were there. He thought that the, he had the Texas Army cornered, and when Cause arrived on April 20th with 500 more men, Santa Ana felt it was only a matter of time before victory was his. Houston's cavalry headed off probes by the Mexican forces to find the Texan Army's flanks on April 20th and 21st, but Santa Ana settled down in his camp to wait for the next day when he would attack the Texas forces and wipe them out. Houston's spies reported to him that the Mexican camp was unprepared for attack without even sentries or pickets. Houston ordered Deaf Smith to destroy the bridge over the creek to the west of the Mexican camp, and late in the afternoon gathered his forces to cross the low-rising field between the woods where the two camps were located. His orders were strict silence until they were almost on the camp, where Santa Ana and his army were famously taking afternoon siesta, and Santa Ana himself may have been engaged in uh, other activities with a lovely young servant girl named Emily West. General Houston personally led the infantry as they advanced over the marshy ground, Many of the famous names of Texas history were either leading the companies of men or were within the lines. Sidney Sherman, Juan Seguin, Edward Burleson, and Henry Millard led the companies at the front of the line. Henry Carnes commanded the companies behind them. George Hockley commanded the Twin Sisters, which were manned by Ben and Henry McCulloch. Newcomer Maribel Lamar had been advanced from private to captain in the previous day's skirmishing and commanded the cavalry moving around the Mexican flank. Secretary of War Thomas Rusk, Rangers Bigfoot Wallace, Three-Legged Willie Robinson, and John Tumlison, and of course our own Creed Taylor, marched in the line of men advancing towards the unsuspecting Mexican army. A few dozen yards from the Mexican lines, Houston ordered his troops to charge, and the line surged ahead, shouting, Remember the Alamo! Remember Goliad! Reports of the battle say that the Mexican troops were startled by the yells and leapt up to be met full force by a massive volley from the Texan troops. According to eyewitness accounts, the Texan troops dropped to the ground after the first volley, expecting return from the Mexican lines. But Salvador Flores' brother Manuel remained standing and exclaimed, Get up! Santa Ana's men are retreating! The Mexican officers tried desperately to get their men in the ranks to fight back, but it was too late. Many were killed in the first volley, and by that time the Texans were over the barricade and among Mexican soldiers. The lust of battle, months of frustration from retreating, and rage over Santa Ana's brutality at Goliad and and the Alamo fueled the Texans. The battle turned from a rout into a massacre in just a few moments. Mexican troops fled into the marshes and the creeks and were hunted down and shot or clubbed by vengeful Texans. Houston's attempt to gain control of his army was in vain after his ankle was shattered by a bullet during the initial fighting. Only nine Texans were killed 
and 15 were wounded by the time Colonel Almonte surrendered the few remaining troops he could organize. This was in just 18 minutes of fighting, but it would take over an hour to stop Texan troops from killing the Mexicans. Over 700 Mexican troops were killed and 200 wounded in what remains one of the most shocking and decisive victories in all of history. Over 700 men in Santa Ana's army were captured over the next two days, and El Presidente himself was captured trying to escape early the next day. Resting under the shade of an oak tree and in tremendous pain from his wounded foot, General Houston received Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, Commander-in-Chief of the Armies of Mexico, the self-proclaimed Napoleon of the West, and accepted his personal surrender as well as the promise that he would order his remaining troops to retreat and leave Texas. News of Santa Ana's defeat spread quickly. The remaining Mexican forces under Vicente Filisola and Urea at Fort Bend gathered and in a council of war decided that even though they probably still outnumbered Houston's army, they would honor Santa Ana's orders to retreat. On April 28th, the Mexican armies in Texas began the long process of withdrawing south of the Rio Grande. The revolution was over, and as the refugees who had fled east in the face of those armies began to return to rebuild their homes, they returned to a free and independent Republic of Texas. I think this would be a good time for us to stop and share our thoughts on this very historic moment in Texas history. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot to chew on there. Right, it is. And the reason why I kind of group these two subjects into one is because, first of all, this is the anniversary of San Jacinto. And I think that in many ways, the story of San Jacinto is really the story of the runaway scrape. It's it's that they retreated and retreated and retreated and finally turned around and fought uh, and and won the battle, but they retreated because they were it was it had to be the right time. Well, so much of Texas history, I think, when people think of the Texas Revolution, they think of the slaughter at Goliad or more specifically the loss at the Alamo. Right. The important thing though is that we won. You know, everybody remembers we made a joke we made a joke about it, but everybody loves Empire Strikes Back. But the good guys win at the end of Return of the Jedi. And right. this was really the redemption for Houston and all of the Texans who were fighting against Santa Ana. And it and it really did color the the experience of Texas and just the memory of Texas. Uh, you know, Texas lost ten uh, percent of its population. Just just didn't come back. That that left the runaway scrape and didn't come back. Now they grew again years several, over the next several years, but. This was a scarring experience in, in the Texas memory, but the victory at San Jacinto was so much more monumental than the sacrifice that was made during during the retreat. Well, it's an epic it's an epic signature battle worthy of you know, worthy of Greeks, worthy of Napoleon, worthy of these sort of you know and it was an, it was a rout and then it became, as you said, a slaughter. Right. And, you know, it goes back again to what we said before that the this whole concept of the Texas fighting man that that archetype they they're independent but they could be led by a strong will and Sam Houston was that leader that they needed to kind of gather them together and focus their efforts you know he was the one that said you know what let's let's keep moving back let's wait for our time let's you know wait for the right moment to fight back right and to hold them uh, to hold them back too. Ray Taylor's uh in his in his tall men with long rifles he did write, you know, he's very dismissive of Sam Houston. Uh, you know, he said, we, uh, we Texans can, ten, one of us can lick 10 of those, those Mexican soldiers. And, and that was a lot of the attitude was they, they wanted to go. Even at Gonzalez, when they were out, still outnumbered three to one, they wanted to go. 
and, and fight Santa Ana. And he knew Houston had been through war and he'd been through battle. He knew that they had to retreat. It was, it was logical to retreat. Well, Houston to me, you know, represents just the, an unsung genius in terms of, of American and Texan history. And I think that this is the absolute validation for, you know, he not only had to fight against the day, the politics of the day, he had to fight against the soldiers and the people and the volunteers. He had to deal with the people who was telling, pack up your belongings, head east, burn your town to the ground and move on. And, you know, you look at the, just the amazing odds stacked in his favor that somehow he managed to wrangle these horribly stubborn people to bend them to his will, both through like sheer force and also coercion and charm and just managed to, to pull the whole thing together in the end. Yeah, I think it's mostly due to the fact that he was a shining white 50-foot giant. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we talked about in other episodes, when Sam Houston says something, you should listen. It's absolutely This is another right. example. This is every, every time Sam Houston says something, it's just like, it's just it's a great idea. You should do it. Well, here's an interesting twist to to this whole thing, too, and this steps out of the Texas history a bit and goes, you know, we had long discussions about this kind of period of how are we going to approach it? How are we going to talk about these battles in the history? And what I thought was really interesting is to really understand all of the deep political ramifications of what happened in Texas, you have to unroll 50 years of Mexican politics. Right. And you have to look at all these in, you know, you have to look at Bustamante, you have to look at all these internal revolutions, you have to look at all this strife. And it's a very complicated political puzzle. Yeah. And I think for the average Texan settler, they're like, there's free land in Texas, there's opportunity in Texas. And they just came in and they set up shot and they had no idea about all of this stuff that was happening in Mexico. So when Santa Ana shows up, he says, I know exactly what to do. This is just another Mexican colony, right. and I know exactly how to deal with these and, people. And I've done this before, and and you know the the Battle of Medina was actually a far bigger battle than the battle any of the battles of the Texas Revolution, uh, and it was a absolute slaughter. It makes San Jacinto look like a just a fist fight. That it was a horrible slaughter on the part of the Spanish against the the Republic of the North, and so that was his experience of dealing with things, and. Um, it didn't work in Texas. And Texas well, wasn't only yeah. wasn't the only place that was in right. in revolution. There were other revolutions right. going on throughout Mexico and at the continued same time. after continued after the Texas Revolution as well. It's not like Santa Ana was this great leader that these Anglo's just turned on for no reason. He he was. I will I will stand and argue with anyone that he was a terrible terrible dictator. Uh, in his actions, at least at this time. Now, he's the ultimate political uh, uh, political chameleon and the ultimate comeback kid in terms of politics because he came back to power like seven times. Uh, so, you know, he, he deserves some credit for that. But he was he was absolutely trampling on on the rights. And in one of the books that I read, uh, it made the point of saying uh, that the American Revolution the the revolutionaries we, the our founding fathers were revolting against the idea of political oppression and of a uh, political oppression the texans were actually revolting against the fact of political oppression and yeah. of despotism and yeah. so that's really a distinction now you want to argue other other political factors such as slavery such as 
uh, illegal immigration and land grabbing in this context, we can talk about that at some point. But the fact is, is that they had definitive cause to revolt. They weren't the only Mexican colony uh, yeah. state yeah. to do so. Yeah, the American Revolution was against the, the evil empire, but the Texas Revolution was against the emperor and Darth Vader. Yes, exactly. Thank per- you personified for, in Thank Santa you for Anna. calling well, the, it back to Well, to be very clear, the the fight against the the emperor in episodes four, five, and six is a far superior to the fight against this sort of faceless whatever. I don't know what was going on in one, two, and three. <laughs> right. That's how I feel about American history. If something happened, I don't know. It's very confusing, and those prequels are just not worth really investing the time in. But you should watch the originals yes. of the Texas Revolution. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Even Maybe though they happened historically later, they're really better. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, <right. laughs> well, one of the things get to get back to San Jacinto that you can do uh, is go to the San Jacinto Monument in Houston, Texas. Uh, it's actually in Baytown, right? Uh, Laporte. It's in Laporte, which is a suburb of Houston. It, it, they built it right next to the Battleship Texas. Right. Well, I think they put the Battleship <laughs> Texas right next to Again, the San Jacinto Memorial. History and years and dates, really not our specialty <laughs> on know? this side of the microphone, Sean. But, You're really going to have to fix it. But us. it's a great day trip because it doesn't cost hardly any money. You can go to the Battleship Texas. You can go to the San Jacinto Memorial. You can see this battleground, which probably looks quite different than it did back then. But uh, uh, there's a great little seafood shack that's down the street from it. That you can have lunch at and, and, a, and a beer or Lone Star. And it's a it's a it's a great experience, but the the San Jacinto Memorial is a very beautiful park, and you should you should just definitely check it out. Now, one thing about that battlefield in the area, and something we didn't talk about in this episode, but I think is important, and it's something I remember reading in some of the historical literature, that the battlefield there was this bloodlust. The sold they slaughtered people wholesale, and then everybody just went home. Mm-hmm. They just left the bodies, and they really didn't. Yeah, like there's there's mythical parts that's covered in some of Creed Taylor's writings later that they just people just left the bodies and there was this kind of uh, Texas myth about just there was a stench about that place just that there was the smell of death was on that battlefield for years after it happened and it was it was a horrible I mean it's one of those things that when you actually break down the game the game numbers you're just like this is a a horrible scene about just the, the wholesale slaughter that took place in a relatively small area uh yeah and and I think the slaughter it at San Jacinto probably was informed more by what happened at Goliad than by the Alamo. Cause we've talked about this before that in the Alamo, those men knew that they were, st- that they were, they were doomed. They knew yeah. that they knew that they were, they were fighting to the death and they knew they didn't have a chance, but it was Goliad where they surrendered honorably what they thought honorably and were told one thing and then were just yeah. slaughtered. Well, and that's, we talked before about how over time, People have truncated the battle cry at San Jacinto to just remember the Alamo, right. but it was remember the Alamo, remember Goliath, right. both that of those together. Important. When I try to think about these battles in the modern historical context, these were two fairly equal-sized forces. Mm-hmm. They were using the same kinds of technology. There was no real differentiation. You know, They were both well-commanded and organized. Uh, relatively. I mean, it wasn't like... <laughs> it wasn't... Um, you know, it wasn't like the kind of things that the English pulled on, like, right. you know... Bunker Hill. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't untrained farmers against <clears throat> professional soldiers. These it, were, was, it was it was untrained farmers against conscripted draftees. Yeah, well, I mean, they were experienced fighters in two very different ways. Right, exactly. But exactly. it wasn't... It, there was, you know, on paper, you're like, oh, this is going to be a great Super Bowl. And then... Right. But yeah. then you watch it, and you're like, 
Ooh. Well, at least I had good commercials. Yeah. Well, and this was <laughs> this was eighteen minutes of actual fighting, yeah. and then an hour of beating and slaughter. Yeah. So it wasn't it wasn't the most fun Super Bowl. No, but it is important to Texas history, and it is important to American history uh, that this occurred. And it's amazing, you know, there's a lot of things that we still could talk about. You know, someday we may do an episode on Santa Ana. We'll definitely talk about General Houston. Um, you know, many things, the, the famous painting of Santa Ana being brought before Houston mm-hmm. as he's laying down on this under this oak tree, uh, and Santa Ana was brought to him, and, and it's just this famous painting, and there's many of the famous people in Texas history in this painting. So, and, and I believe it's actually, I want to say it's at the state capitol. Yeah. Well, I, be, I bet Creed Taylor's in there somewhere. Creed Taylor probably is somewhere. He's probably he probably painted it. <laughs> <laughs> well, one last story on this thing. I think it's something that was always highlighted to me in in the history books. I know it's a story that happened in it. Santa Ann, and and one of the things is we talk about he's the comeback kid. He's just he's just the guy who won't quit. Somehow he manages to weasel back in. But when everything went wrong, Santa Ann stripped out of his clothes <laughs> and he put on a enlisted soldier's uniform and he escaped and from creed taylor in his memoirs like is written <clears throat> that he was there when they captured a load of soldiers and they brought him in and as they marched this one soldier past and he's just a normal enlisted guy everyone is saluting and saying el presidente el presidente el presidente <laughs> and so they were like i think this guy might be important yeah uh and and he's identified, and that—that's how. He, but he almost managed to escape, but well, through course of disguise. And that was one of those yeah. those great myths of like Texas history we were told as kids about this cowardly general who changed into into a private uniform to escape justice. Yeah. There's a there's another. It's a little bit more authenticated story that the men who captured him they actually talked about letting him go, and one of them said. <laughs> I'll let you shoot me before I let this Mexican go. And uh, <laughs> um, it turned out that that was probably the right decision to keep him. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you. So like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave us some feedback. Be sure to indicate whether it's okay for us to mention you on the show. You can also find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. You can follow us individually, too. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Shaw with two ends. And I am Scotticus. If you like the show, tell your friends and please leave a review on iTunes. That really helps us out. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas, Texas wants you anyway. anyway. <laughs>